0: Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Lit Service, where we're fans of fiction and purveyors of dodgy writing advice. I'm Caitlin. I'm Kristen. I'm Cameron. And this week we're going to be talking about how to build tension in a story. What is tension?
1: I read this question about tension and I thought about when I first read Catching Fire. I'd been a fan of The Hunger Games for a long time, um, and I was like waiting for the book to come out, and when I bought it, like the day that it came out, the whole time I was reading, I just kept having this knot in my stomach just keep growing throughout the whole book because I was like, oh, no, terrible things keep happening to people that I like. And that isn't necessarily required for tension, but I feel like you want an emotional response from that tone that you're setting from those things that are happening in your plot. It's like kind of like a musical chord where you'll have two notes that are dissonant with each other and then you want a resolution. So it's just a way to get your audience interested in what you're writing about.
0: It's true. Like when you're listening to a choir sing or a, a piece of music mm-hmm. and you hear that dissonance, it catches your attention and you like wait for it to resolve.
2: So maybe a little more technically, I like to think of tension as either a sort of a, a fear of loss or as maybe like, like, the, or like an anticipation of pleasure for something that's mm-hmm. going to happen. So like the will they, won't they is... Mm-hmm. Hopefully in anticipation of pleasure. Um, but you can also have a fear of loss. So like like the, the typical, it's like, oh, he's the character. Like, Maybe you have a, you have a wide perspective and you have a character walking down, you and there's a monster behind them that the character doesn't know about. There is a fear. I think that's about to happen and that creates a tension that pulls the reader forward.
0: When I was younger, I used to love the video game Thief. And I would have so much anxiety about the monsters in Thief that mm-hmm. I couldn't play it. I had to stop. <laughs> <laughs> it was too real. But um when I was thinking about this, I was thinking about it more in an anticipation sort of way. When I read books, I think that even if it makes me afraid or makes me worry, what I really want to see is to see things come to a head. Like if I know two characters are going to clash, I'm looking forward to it and watching it build and just waiting for it to happen. Or, or if two characters are going to kiss. That's right. <laughs> I mean, we're waiting for it and we know it's going to happen. It's like that chord. We're waiting mm-hmm. for it to either resolve or perhaps become more dissonant. Like fall apart entirely.
2: So so if if I may, like one I think like one absolutely amazing demonstration of an anticipation of a clash between two characters, I really like in Words of Radiance by Mm -hmm. Sanderson. You know, we're all Sanderson fans here, right. Where we have (laughs) where we have at the beginning of the book we know that one of the main characters is a bodyguard for someone else. And we know that this other character we've previously seen to be this amazing assassin is going to assassinate Mm -hmm. that character. And you know that at the beginning of this huge book and you see them coming towards this inevitable clash over the course of this entire ridiculously massive thing. Anyway, I Mm -hmm. liked it.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I liked it too. We're waiting for it to happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm
1: -hmm. Well, and I think the thing is, is like, we tend to be science fiction and fantasy fans, but you need this sort of tension, like any book that you're, that you're reading, like, There's a really good nonfiction book called Shipwreck at the Bottom of the World that I love. And you know at the beginning that all the characters, you know what's going to happen to all of them. They tell you what happens on like the page one. And you're still really tense because the question is how is this going to be resolved? How do you get to the end? Mm -hmm. And so I think if you can raise that sort of question, then you're going to end up having an effect on your readers.
0: So when we were talking about this or brainstorming, we were talking about how tension can't just come from one place. Like if the words of radiance only relied on that one source of tension of Kaladin having to face off this scary assassin, if any of you guys have read it from the very beginning, I mean, come on, that's not (laughs) a spoiler, right? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, (laughs) yeah, yeah, it's fine. Okay. Anyway. (laughs) So if that was the only source of tension, Sanderson wouldn't have had a thousand pages,
2: right? There's, so many subplots we mm-hmm. could talk about whether it needs that many subplots but the fact of the matter is it has all these different <laughs> you have romantic subplots you have multiple like political shenanigans subplots you have war plots you have there's if you're paying attention in the background there's a cosmic good versus evil god subplot going on mm-hmm. and there's just a ton of different places where you see things are, as you were saying, coming to a head. And the question is, how is this going to resolve itself? And then often, more importantly for, for the reader, as this is resolving itself, what's going to happen to the people I care about mm-hmm. as a result of this?
0: Okay, so what are the ways? I mean, obviously, we don't want to start with with all the tension possible. You have to set it up, and then you have to rise slowly. So what are ways that you can make tension rise in a writing?
2: Well, so I think, especially when we're talking about, you don't want to just start with everything in it. One of the, I think, one of the key building blocks of great tension is that the reader has to care about the people that the stuff's happening to, and you, and there there is a simple effect of the longer people spend reading about something, there's an investment there. That just on a psychological level makes them care more about what's going on. So That's you're why
0: saying I, longer is better. Not, no, 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 no.
2: What I'm saying is it is a factor uh-huh. that is something to keep in common. And it explains why it is so much easier to ramp up tension if you're going longer than it is to create. Like, like if you're just doing a microfiction paragraph, it's really hard to get the same tension in a single paragraph that you can build up over, say, if you've invested in the multiple door stops. That is the Stormlight Archive.
0: <laughs> That's true.
2: By the time you get to the end of the third doorstop, you're invested in what's going on, if only because you spent all that much time. Now, obviously, you don't, you you can't only rely on people spending time with it because if they're, or they're not going to spend the time on it. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's something to keep in mind. And it's a reason not to try to make it stupid tense right at the beginning of your book because people don't care enough yet for it to actually mean anything.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I think one thing that helps is to reveal like a what if, like if you have a character's goal, we need to know what will happen if they get it and what will happen if they don't get it. And that's actually like something people generally put on like blurbs or in query letters, right? Cause that's, That's what gets readers invested and that's what makes us care about it is do we know what's the worst possible thing that could happen or do we have some hint of the fact that there's danger? And I think revealing character desires and pitting them against each other can be a good way to build tension too because you have these two people competing for the same thing and you want to know how that's going to play out.
2: Which kind of lends into a way that you can kind of cheat around that whole time investment thing. If you have characters with competing motivations and those are motivations that the reader can identify with, then you, you kind of cheat a little bit because you get the reader with their, you know, their they, they see these emotions in those other characters and so they kind of there's a tendency to project onto those characters. They don't care about your character yet, but they do care about themselves and they know how they felt in that situation. So now they have an investment in it, even if it's not actually in the character yet.
0: So what you're saying is you have compelling and sympathetic characters yep. that if we're going with Kristen's method are pitted against one another, so you hope that both of them win <laughs> but it's impossible
1: <laughs> well that doesn't even necessarily have to be the case but it's like a favorite way of mine to mm-hmm. the tension because like draco and harry aren't necessarily equally
0: we don't love them both the same no
1: we don't and <laughs> maybe like some people do but i don't think that's generally what was intended with those characters and so i don't know as long as you have something standing in a character's way if it seems like it's impossible to move out of the way that's going to be really interesting
0: Okay. So we have our character, we have the thing that they want, Mm -hmm. and then you have the barrier between them and that thing, which is kind of like, well, that's the obstacle. We've been talking about that a lot on the podcast lately, actually. So, and then we have the stakes, which is what happens if they don't get that thing that they want. So we have like our main inciting incident, the main plot, but there can also be tension coming from other places. Like I just finished reading American Panda by Gloria Chow. And in that one, the main plot is about her versus her parents. What she wants, she does not want to be a doctor, she has, she's like a germaphobe. But her parents, who have like given everything to her and pay for everything and guilt trip her to death, say, you're gonna be a doctor. She got into MIT, she's super smart, but she gets there and tries so hard, but she can't handle it. And she just wants to be a dance teacher. So that's the main plot. But then there's also all of these other side things that add tension throughout consistently. Like there's this boy who's Japanese, who her parents do not approve of because they want her to marry someone who's Taiwanese. There's... Her roommate who is sleeping around and getting germs all over her apartment and makes her worried. There's lots of different things that add consistently to the plot that are also resolved over time. So you can't let tension all come to a head at once during the climax because otherwise your reader's head will explode.
2: But. Well, also, and also if you're all having it coming to a head at the climax, you, you're not giving payoff to the readers leading up to it. So they might not even get there.
1: I also think it's important to vary the kind of subplot that you have. Like this one book that I edited kept having the character run into the same sort of problem, like a kind of malicious man who was being a little bit creepy, right? Mm -hmm. And the first time I was like, okay, this is a valid thing. I feel really tense about this. But like by the third time that same situation was set up, I was like, okay, suddenly I'm not invested anymore because every time it's been the same. So I think that making sure to have different kinds of problems throughout your book or your manuscript is really, really helpful.
0: Another one that I kind of thought about as we were talking about this is This Mortal Coil by, wow, I can't talk, This Mortal Coil by Emily Subata It's a story about this, it's got like reverse zombie disease. So instead of Zombies coming to eat people. If you're around the zombies, it makes you want to eat them. What? That's <laughs> yeah, pretty oh. cool. And um, there's this scary corporation that has taken everybody in to keep them safe, but the main character is allergic to the tech they put in people, and so she can't go inside. And her father, like, said, if you go in there, you'll die, and you can't. But they took him inside, so there's, like, a daddy subplot. There's this scary boy who's like, I'm going to take you to the corporation, and I'm also really cute subplot. And they all build on one another and end up intersecting. And some of them resolve each other. So the A plot, which is the scary corporation plus zombies, is then resolved by one of those other B plots. Or there's also like twists and turns and other things that happen that all end up intersecting with the main plot. But by themselves, they add tension a little bit at a time without feeling like the same thing. This is when it's really helpful to be an outliner. (laughs) Yes, it's true. But if you aren't an outliner, you can always reverse outline afterwards. You Mm -hmm. can take all of your main plot and your world building and say, okay, how can I make these things fit together? Which is what I
1: usually end up doing. (laughs) I'll
0: (laughs) just do it a little bit. (laughs)
1: Yeah. So, we were talking earlier about making things escalate. That was really what you were talking about, Cameron, right? Um, I'll take your word for it. It was. When we were talking about the words of radiance, we were talking oh. about mm-hmm. escalation. And since I am in the process of rereading Red Rising, for, so I can read Iron Gold when it comes out. Right, right. Um, but I So, I got to a part, and my favorite character, I'm going to misquote and make it appropriate, but he says basically, like, stuff escalates, right? And... <laughs> I think that when you start with smallish stakes and increase them and then make characters deal with the fallout, that can be really interesting too. Because a lot of times I think a misconception is that your tension should keep going like this and this and this, and then everything is fixed and then you're fine. But I I just read um, this YA book, it's called Out of the Dust. So it's about a teenage girl and her family who are struggling to make ends meet during the Dust Bowl, which is a really interesting premise, just like you already know that stuff is going against them because you've got like the dust, you've got the fact that they're probably poor. You've got a lot of things that automatically I'm expecting from this book. And then we, we learned that the main character wants to be a pianist and that her parents don't really improve, approve and she doesn't have a lot of places to play piano. And so that's really interesting too. And then her mom is pregnant, but her mom has never been able to have another baby except for her. And so all of that is like pretty interesting. That could be a good book. And then I'm going to spoil this, but about halfway, not even halfway through, like a third of the way through, there's a really tragic accident where the protagonist ends up dramatically burning her mom. Her mom and the baby brother die in childbirth and she Mm -hmm. ruins her hands and she can't. So her dad obviously doesn't take this well and he ends up drinking his troubles away and just being really out of her life. And so you have what seems like it should have been a climax of some sort where the tension is really, really high but the rest of the book is Billy learning how to deal with everything that's happened to her. And it's so beautiful. And the tension never leaves because you're wondering, like, will she run away? What's she going to do? Will she and her father ever make up? And so I think if if as writers, we can give readers like several possible outcomes um, and make them all feel equally possible, the readers are going to be wanting to know which one is it going to be because it's kind of up in the air.
0: Mm-hmm. And it sounds like, the tension in that book while you have like a really high physical tension one, it's an it's an emotional oh
1: yeah and i didn't realize that that's what it was at the time Mm -hmm. because when i was listening to it i was like oh wow this is physically tense and i didn't know how much of the book was left and so then i was realizing that oh man everything is sad and the world's on fire (laughs) so like yeah that's a bad pun for that book but
2: (laughs) oh dear
0: Tension starts with your inciting incident, and then mm. it builds from there. We've kind of already covered this, but... Just on a really technical yeah, scale. it It starts with your inciting incident, and then you have to continue to build on it up until your climax. But there should be moments of calm, just so that readers don't have, like... Unless it's a really short book or a thriller...
2: I was going say not if not calm, you want you want to sprinkle in little bits of at least some resolution here right. and there before you get to the big one so that your reader trusts that you are going to resolve things. Like I, I can't think of any examples off the top of my head, but I'm sure if, I don't know, pick your favorite pick your well, favorite pick thinking your favorite of Illuminae, love.
1: Because right? yeah. Illuminae has this raging climax of like hundred or more pages where it's just like, Oh my gosh, what's going to happen? But you get like small bits of humor in there. You get and some small, resolution with, um, a certain love interest kind of, um, you get moments to breathe even though they're really, really short, but it, I mean, I never lost
0: interest. I think this is where you employ the yes, but no, and a yeah. thing. Um, I actually don't know who came up with, it. I always hear Mary at Coel talk about it, but where you have in a plot, you have your character accomplish something, and so you have a moment of, Hooray, we did something, we accomplished something, we fixed something, it's yes, comma, but something else goes wrong. The the thing they accomplished isn't actually what they needed, or this other thing comes in and messes it up. Or because so, they did something, mm-hmm. a new problem has arisen. Either that, or with tension, you can say, No, we didn't accomplish our goal, and something else is added onto it. Which is the saddest one, <laughs> <Yeah>. personally. <laughs> So, well, we're going to go through a movie that hopefully all of you guys have seen. Oh. It's called, except for Cameron, who is apparently anti-rom-com, which actually doesn't surprise uh. me. It is classic rom-com. If you haven't seen it, we are going to spoil it pretty badly. So if you don't want us to spoil this movie for you, then skip. <laughs> so, The inciting Incident. We have Gracie. <laughs> Cameron's probably wishing he can leave the room right now Um, The inciting incident We have Gracie who's super lonely She doesn't have any family She works at the train station And this guy that she sees come through every day Who she's secretly in love with Gets mugged and falls on the tracks So she jumps down the tracks Pulls him off before a train crushes him and that's the inciting incident. So then there's going to be a change. So
1: Gracie goes to the hospital because she wants to, like, you know, see if the guy that she loves
0: is fine. Well, and, and also if you're involved in a traumatic incident, people tend to there, go follow right? up. Yeah.
1: But the nurse ends up assuming that she's Peter's fiance. And she and Peter have never actually spoken before. Somehow Gracie gets let into the room in the midst of
0: this confusion. Right. And then we raise the stakes. Peter's family shows up. And they also assume she's his fiance because he's kind of estranged from his family and the nurse is like, Oh, here's the fiance and Gracie, you know, I mean tension goes up because suddenly she's not only the fiance, but the whole family knows that she yeah. is.
1: And it seems like it'd be easy to just be like, Guys, oh, not? that's not yeah. the truth. But she gets invited out for Christmas dinner with the family and she's lonely, so she accepts, and while she's there, she realizes that she absolutely loves this entire family and that she doesn't want them out of her life and that she's starting to get a little bit nervous about confessing that she is not the fiance.
0: Yeah. I mean, like, even if it's not like an immediate, I love all of you. She's just alone at Christmas and just, I want to be with you guys and you're nice. Right. Mm -hmm. So there's another raising of stakes. One of the family members overhears her saying that she is not Peter's fiance, but then there's like a twist and a raising of stakes
1: because he basically says, Look, I know you're not Hiseor, but you can't tell anybody else because it's going to give the grandma a heart attack. You're going to ruin everything.
0: So you can see up until now, we've had, like, our inciting incident and then a slow raising of stakes until our character is in a huge mess that she has no way to extract herself from. Then you get a new source of tension because she meets Jack, who's Peter's brother, and Jack
1: doesn't actually believe that she is who she says she is because she's just, like, not Peter's type, none of us is right. And he is just trying to go out of his way to prove that she's not actually who
0: she says she is. And she goes over backwards to to prove that she yeah. is Peter's fiancé because she doesn't want the grandma to have a heart attack. <laughs> Which, you know, it's a silly rom-com, okay? Yeah, no, it's, it's so cute. <laughs> so, and then there's a new source of tension after that because she falls madly in love with Jack. Of course she does. And
1: the twist is that he's in love with her back.
0: <laughs> So then there's another raising of stakes. Peter wakes up and doesn't remember Gracie because
1: they never met. (laughs) And basically everyone is like, you have amnesia. (laughs) She keeps pretending to be his fiance, even though now he's awake because she's in love with Jack and she doesn't want to lose his affection and his respect. And this, all of the connections she now has to this family
0: okay so there's another twist peter decides to propose to her because she's super cool and says i want to start everything over and so she's given this situation where she's in love with his brother but she's actually supposed to be engaged to him and now is like actually engaged to him. well because peter the the
1: family member yeah so that, the family yeah. member that knows that gracie wasn't engaged to peter goes up to mm-hmm. peter and it's like Peter, I know you don't remember her. She was the love of your life. And if you waste this opportunity, you are just scum. And Peter's (laughs) like, I have to change everything. (laughs) Yeah, But at the climax at their wedding, Gracie reveals everything that she didn't know Peter that she didn't want to risk hurting the family that she thinks that Peter and the rest of the family will hate her and that Jack is the person that she's in love with now. So it's just like a spill fest where she tells everything.
0: That's right. So this is one of those moments, or one of those things. I think in movies, you can get away with the climax being kind of all at once Well, you still have to deal
1: with the fallout, because then she's true. lonely and, and just with her cat. Well, there's
2: also additional consideration that most movies are, you know, at most, maybe, you're spending three hours if it's like Lord of the Rings, whereas most novels... Our rom-com is
0: going to be like an hour and 20 minutes. Right. Yeah, whereas short.
2: the mm-hmm. average novel investment is going to be tens of hours, not...
0: This is why a lot of book or video game adaption to movies don't work because you don't get the time you need with the characters Mm -hmm. and like the intricacy of plot for it to make sense. So you have to here
2: nor there. (laughs) That's true.
0: (laughs) So, there are other sources of tension that we didn't go straight into. We went in enough detail, probably. Yeah. (laughs) But so, anyway, as you can see in that, it's like a constant raising of stakes. So, instead of just staying with, I'm in love with this guy, he is in a coma, and I really want to figure this out, we consistently raise stakes. They don't even leave it just at the family, they add in like another love interest, and then they add in another family member being like, I know who you are, and the grandma (laughs) with a heart attack. It's just a constant raising of stakes until we get to the climax. And, I mean,
1: it's not going to be a direct adaptation from movie format to book format, but the basis is the same and i think this works in every genre as long as you're escalating you're you're doing it right
0: okay so we should probably move on to the next portion of our podcast where we critique a submission quick review of how we do things we try not to be prescriptive which means we try not to tell people how to rewrite something we just tell them when we see things that might need a little more care and attention if you'd like to check out the submission that we're talking about and see all of our notes, you can go check it out on our website at litservicepodcast.wixsite.com slash podcast. So our submission for today is about a girl who's on an island who's a fisher person. A navigator, too. A navigator, too. We don't know why she's not navigating, why she's fishing instead. But the fish all seem to be dying for some reason, or they're, they're poisoned, or mm-hmm. something's going on. And so she can't sell fish and is worried about eating because she can't sell fish. And at the very end, we have this interesting magician sort of guy, maybe. Kind of a Shakespearean fool type character, yeah, I feel c- like. Yeah, come in and say, would you like to be my assistant? And
1: she says, well, not really, but I want the money. Things that we like. First thing I got to say is that this mentions invisible pirates. And you can just go ahead and imagine a couple of exclamation points and question marks in my voice because what does that even mean? It doesn't matter. I'm sold on the concept. Like invisible things are cool, pirates are cool, invisible pirates. <laughs>
0: bam! Awesome. I was totally on board too.
2: I really liked how the Im- the imagery. And there was some really nice. Well, so we're like we have like she gazed out at the glittering sapphire sea surrounding the island all it's So We got like really nice. I like alliteration. I like assonance, and it's a nice picture. All We've at lost the same our video time. feed,
0: but K- Kristen's making an interesting <laughs> face. <laughs> my, my face is just like I will have to come back to that.
1: Yeah. Okay. I agree, well. Actually.
2: Personally, I liked it. This is why it's Um, nice to have a whole group of people critique it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so if apparently the lines I like were not the lines that you like, maybe you need to read something.
1: Okay, I can read something that I liked. I really liked this imagery about the festival on Kefir Islands. So it says, One of Kefir Islands' inhabitants, dressed in all silver-drifted past, hundreds of glistening candles floating behind her, bobbing up and down as if they knew they had a great mission to partake in. And I just think that was a really cool way to show us some magic. And so we get like an idea of the scope of what sort of magic these people have, because clearly it can make candles float behind them. And so it helps us know that the magic is going to be big magic, not little magic.
0: I really liked the opening line that said that there's something not right with the sea, which I feel like is a very interesting, it made me keep going. And so I like that a lot. It's I also, a good opening hook. Yeah. Yeah. I also really liked. There's a paragraph that says the shell cobblestone stretched out unevenly, rocks jutting out here and there for hundreds of meters. Little ochre and red brick shops dotted either side of the road. Some roofs, dilapidated black shingles peeling off in the blazing sun. So there's just like this very nice, and it goes on to the smells, and we get a very nice picture before she actually walks into town. Cameron is making a face now. We need
2: uh, we need <laughs> the video feed
0: <laughs> to truly appreciate what is happening right now.
2: <laughs> just just stuff that we're gonna comment. It's fine. On in a minute,
1: yeah. Something. There were some nice voice moments. I think the opening line is a good example of some of the voice stuff. But there's also a line later where it's like festivals brought all the weirdos out mm-hmm. and. It gave me a really good idea of what the character was thinking and how that character expresses what they were thinking. So Mm -hmm. I appreciated that. So while we're in town, they mentioned that there are buggies driving past. And I think buggies is a really great way to drop a lot of detail because it helps ground us in what level of technology to expect. Because I wasn't really sure what we were getting into initially because like anyone, anytime could be a Fisher, right? So like there could be guns too. I don't know, but buggies automatically know what sort of time frame I'm in.
0: So if we want to move on to the second portion where we critique a little bit, I think that, I think that although I really liked some of the details, I felt like a lot of them were sort of just put together almost as if we're looking like at a bunch of snapshots that don't actually fit together very well. And so I wasn't sure, like there's a little girl who runs across the street and, and then she talks about grabbing, I can't remember, she like almost falls or something. And I'm not really sure why that's there. And there's a lot of detail that's added. Like at the very beginning, I also felt like the glittering sea stuff was maybe a little bit extra.
1: So my my comment about that is actually that I thought the first couple of paragraphs were really tonally jarring. because um, So your first sentence, your first paragraph is, there was something not right with the sea. Then we... So that's like kind of quirky. It's voicey. It's cool. Next line. Evren's, uh scrutinized the blotted, red-eyed fish that hung from her long silver wire. Their bellies floated from the warming sea. That morning, she had gone down to the edge of Kefir Island's best fishing nook and found more fish walked it, washed ashore, limp and pallid. So we have some danger here. So... There's automatically something interesting to invest ourselves in. Then we get. She gazed out at the glittering sapphire sea surrounding the island in all its glory. The breeze rolled off the sea like invisible threads, tickling her face. White foam lapped at her black boots. Glistening silver and white granite rocks gathered around the corner of the island. The salt air lured her in like a child to a lullaby. The sea was her home. So you go from danger to an automatic, like, lyrical kind of description that suddenly makes the danger not feel dangerous anymore. And then you get to the next paragraph, which is the home that seemed to be going through a rough patch, which is that quirkiness again. And so to me, I thought that the description there was just jarring because it didn't go with the first two paragraphs or the paragraph
2: after it.
0: Cameron really <laughs> wants to say something a lot. Go ahead.
2: I just, just I agree that the, the, to- the shift between those paragraphs is not, is not the greatest, but taken on its own, I think that description of the ocean is amazing. And I'm a I can,
0: bit of that. I can get behind that. I think that one thing, that as you become more of an experienced writer is identifying voice and sticking to it. Being consistent mm-hmm. in a character voice is so important, especially in, in YA. I don't know if this is actually a YA submission. Which it seems like it is. It as well. I think it is too. I think it is. But that quirky voice needs to be consistent throughout. You can't mm-hmm. be Robert Frost for one paragraph.
1: Well, and going back to the detail thing, like, there were a lot of questions that I ended up having about this submission because Kefrin, Keffer, I'm sorry, I'm combining her name. Um, and the name of the island. Yeah. yeah. So the <laughs> island is Kefir, and the original description of it made me think that it was a big city. But then we get a detail that there's only one town baker, and everyone knows her by name, which then automatically is like, oh, this town is tiny. But we also, we find out like right after that, that the island actually is small, but because I had already assumed it was big, it felt like we got that information out of order. And also, Everin isn't from Kefir, but it's hard to tell how familiar she is with the town because like she knows the town Baker, but she's surprised by like the quality of the road, right? And so I, I couldn't decide quite how she fit in. And I think that goes along with something that both of, I think all three of us were talking about how we don't really understand who she is or why she thinks people won't want to do business with her. Right.
2: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We get that she's, she's a navigator, which another problem is we get to the end of this. We still don't actually really know what that means
0: or why she isn't doing that right now.
2: Right. Well, so, so, so we, we are, we are, we're told not really shown. We are told that she is an amazing navigator and she has her own boat so we're left to wonder well then why is she out of work
0: Mm -hmm.
2: why especially since then there's this other character introduced who's like 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 I don't remember exactly what the wording was, but it's like this: this is the man of the town. Yeah, he. You know, the impression this this is you know this is this is this is the Gaston, right? Yeah. And except that's how they're introduced. Except then, like they immediately fold, and like like to me, it sounds like you know like middle school schoolyard arguing Mm -hmm. between him and her, and it it it, 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 just a lot of the details seem at odds with each other.
0: Mm -hmm. I think that going along with that. Uh, about the navigator, you had a point about not knowing age. Like, we don't know how old she mm-hmm. is. Yeah,
1: well, because when we are first introduced to her, she is, like, the best navigator ever, and she's the best by trade, so I assume that she's got some years behind that to back it up. Mm-hmm. And then while she's walking, we get a detail that she's had, like, an ache in her hip for a long time, which sounds like an, sounds old, person. an old person thing, right? And then as we go on and on, I realize that I have no evidence to, to substantiate her claim that she's the best navigator. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like younger, like bragging with, mm-hmm. for no purpose. But because the man of the town brags the same thing, it's hard to tell. I don't know. Why do we care what it's, either of them are saying about this? I
2: think possibly maybe a deeper problem that this touches on is to me, it feels like every, everybody in this world sounds like they have the same voice. I can't pick any. The only don't the think
1: only the fool sounded different
2: maybe he sounded a little but between but between the guy who buys the fish, our main character, and the yeah. the Gaston the only the only difference in voice that I picked up between them was that the Gaston guy was speaking, obviously we're not supposed to like him because he's whiny. but so so given that we can't nail down how old the protagonist is, either from details or the voice that they're using it, it's it's a it's a position that needs to be clarified. Yeah.
0: And I think that a lot of that is part of that voicey stuff that we're talking about from the beginning, just like finding a consistent, this is how I want my character to sound. And this is the main problem. I mean, there are a lot of questions here that could potentially be great questions. Like Mm -hmm. it could be great for us to wonder what happened to her. It could be great for us to wonder what's happening to the island or whatever else, but the way it's couched right now, it feels like we should already know like she's Mm -hmm. providing us Like the question
2: of you have this person who's supposedly really great at this really valuable job but she's out of work that's an interesting question yeah it just feels like we're being strung along because we're not being told right now because we're not getting that resolution to the tension of of this question it weakens our ability to trust that other problems are going to be solved later
0: and you know what it's okay if we didn't get that answer right now as long as we know that the Author is going to answer the question, which yeah. you can you can hint at by giving emotional responses to thoughts like "I don't have a job anymore" and like a reference to something that gives us an idea that this is something that's going to be explored.
1: Or like I'm thinking about substantiating her claims in terms of Star Wars, where you meet Han Solo and he's like, "You don't heard of the Millennium Falcon? It's a ship that did the Kessel Run in twelve parsecs, right?"
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I, that literally means nothing but we know that it means the ship is fast, even though it means nothing. Right. And so
2: <laughs> even though in real world context, <laughs> I mean,
1: well, well, cause like as, as a viewer, you don't know what a Kessel Run is. You don't know how much 12 parsecs is. You don't do. know why it matters. Well, I do too. Okay. <laughs> but that's because we took astronomy. <laughs> the point is that your average viewer won't. And I feel like everyone needs something kind of Kessel runny to me just because she's like, well, I can find the sea, which is Lair. And I'm like,
2: why do I believe you?
1: Like, what, what reason do, do you have to believe that you can do that? Because I I don't know it.
2: See on reflection, as we've been talking about this, a couple dots have connected in my head where we know we have, we have this thing about the invisible pirates and we have her on this island. We don't know why she's not leaving. I'm wondering if maybe that's the reason that there are people after her on the sea. And that's why she has invisible
1: pirates who aren't allowed
2: on water. Again. So something we were going to bring up that we're not quite sure what to do with that, but, I'm wondering if maybe that was something that the author was trying to hint at, that she has enemies that are keeping her landlocked. If Mm -hmm. that's the case, it needs to be stronger. Mm -hmm. I was just very prescriptive. I apologize.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I think just intentionality is kind of where we're coming back to, because while I was reading, it's said, I don't remember how strongly, but I got the impression that she wasn't supposed to, like, the people didn't want to trade with her, right? and there's something about her that makes her, other people not want to deal with her. But I don't think it was ever said explicitly enough, so I was wondering while I was reading, I was just like, what is this? Well,
2: the difference is never lampshaded. We get yeah. the Gaston character who apparently doesn't have any problem with anyone like, dealing with them, so we're wondering, okay, so obviously obviously, there's some difference here between the two. Because you One arrived gets work, and you The other darkfish. doesn't get work. What's the difference? The problem is that the author never lampshades, that there's a difference. So he's just wondering if the author... Knows there's a difference. Do I need to explain what lamp shading means? Probably. Okay. Well, so lamp shading is just generally some kind of an aside where the author somehow admits that this looks wrong, but I know it looks wrong. Trust me, I'll fix it later.
0: Can you give an example?
2: So, so this is this is not necessarily the best example. This was coming to my head right immediately, and I say, the best thing I ever did was shoot my son in the forehead. That sounds horrible. Trust me, I'll come back and explain it later. So that second bit, that this sounds horrible, but but bear with me. That's the lamp shading.
0: That's like straight up right so that's out. like a um, that's
2: like a super odd so like it's not the best example because it's a really that's like a fourth wall breaking lampshade mm-hmm. but you can kind of do this in a different story maybe it's like two friends are talking one just arrived from an ocean voyage and they said it's 3000 miles apart you were on a sailing ship how did you get here in 2 weeks and it's like i realize that that's it's a secret i'll tell you later just an acknowledge. so if you have that conversation between the two and you have oh i'm so happy to see my friend again and you never mention that they made a thousands of mile journey in a couple weeks. If the author doesn't mention that, the reader will think the that, author
0: is messing that the
2: author has not thought through the requirements of traveling across an ocean. Hmm. But an aside, how did you do it from the characters lets the reader know that the author is thinking about it?
1: I had just had an example from a Terry Pratchett book. In Night Watch. at a certain point, a character is running away and is being hunted by his enemies and a car shows up and suddenly stops Door opens, he can climb inside and they peel away at like intense speed, right? And then within the narration the character thinks things like that don't just happen. Like cars only heroes only get rescued by passing cars in like cheap action movies, right? So like we know that the author is aware that it's a thing that needs to be addressed and it gets addressed within the context of the book.
0: All right. Another thing that I struggled with a little bit is I feel like the blocking slash, I guess it was mostly blocking was a little bit off sometimes. Like I wasn't really sure who was talking a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. And then also I don't realize, I did not realize that she was wearing a scarf over her face until the very end, which I feel like is kind of a big detail.
2: (laughs) So it felt like there was a lot of times where there was a lot of the details we got were dropped as they became immediately relevant in the uh, scene yeah. without any foreshadowing. Mm-hmm. so
0: There was one foreshadowing with the scarf, but I didn't understand the blocking. She mm-hmm. talked about moving the scarf ends away from her face, but I just thought she was wearing a scarf. Exactly.
1: Well, because you get to a part where the magician guy shows up, and she's like, you can't even see my face. And at that point, I'm like, wait, what? Why can't you see her face? Is he blind? Is he standing too far away? Like, what is in... What am I missing? Yeah, and then it gets it gets
0: answered, but like I said earlier, I just feel like the detail was out of order. Yeah, something to look at to make sure that things are introduced before they become relevant. Because that's not
2: actually a rule. No, but it's like, not. But, but like <laughs> you have to play it by ear. But like with the scarf thing, it's odd because I got the impression this is at least a pseudo tropical island because we get she complains about how hot the sun is, doesn't she? Am I imagining mm-hmm. this? So when I read that she was wearing a scarf, when it was all of a sudden relevant, I had I, I tripped over the sentence because I'm like. Hold on a second. I thought she was on a hot beach. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Here's why. Here's why in the specific instance of the scarf. Because earlier when she was complaining about the hot sun, it should have come up that she was wearing an uncomfortable scarf. Mm-hmm. But it didn't. So. Well,
0: I mean, and it even could be that it's not uncomfortable because she's used to it and wears it all the time. And yeah. that, that's fine. Other way, it's just that when you picture you a character, to show it. yeah, when you picture a character in your head and then it changes really substantially after you've already been reading about them for a long time, mm-hmm. that's jarring. All right. Then I guess we're going to wrap things up here. So we do have a guest coming on for our next podcast in two weeks, and it is going to be. Ben Grange, who is an agent with the L. Perkins Agency. So getting agent eyes on your work is invaluable. So if you would like a chance for a critique from Ben, submit by April 20th. And we'll put more details up online and you can check out our website to see how to do it. We'll be recording that one live, probably. I mean, we screwed this one up badly. <laughs> we'll see how it goes. But we'll probably be recording it live on the 27th.
2: But Caitlin, why is it important to have an agent look at your work?
0: Why is it important? Because if you're querying, then the whole point is getting agents to look at your work. Hey. <laughs> but an agent can give you feedback as to why. I mean, we can give you feedback because we're all experienced authors and Kristen pretty much what, like, controls the A plus B works agency. <laughs> <laughs> I pile. Just, yeah, I just I so. bullet it. <laughs> So, I mean, um, Kristen has lots of experience reading queries and knowing what works and what doesn't, but she's not an agent. And then I have written a fair share of queries.
1: You are not an agent. (laughs)
0: I'm also not an agent, but an agent is the person who actually chooses to take you on based on, usually it's based on a first chapter, I'm guessing. Like, the hook is in the query, and then they look at your writing to see if it actually is worth reading more from you.
1: Yeah. Ten pages about is what you get.
0: Yeah. And so if you can get an agent to look at your work and tell you what's wrong with it, like, that's a pretty cool opportunity. So... We're really cool is what I'm saying. You should probably come listen to our podcast and try and get your word critiqued by Ben, who is awesome. So if you want to see what we look like and the awkward faces we make while we talk about books, you can come check out our YouTube channel. We are going to be live streaming in the future. If you want to talk to us, you can find us on Twitter at Lit Service or Facebook and Instagram as at Lit Service Podcast. We also hope you'll check out our forum where you can chat with other querying authors and find critique partners. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a star rating and review on whichever podcast app you use. It helps others to find the show. And for lit service, thanks for listening, and we will see you in two weeks.